Well, good morning. I don't know how I'm going to follow up that orchestra performance, but uh, I'm going to do my best, okay? Great to be here with all of you this morning. If you're, if you're joining us online, thanks for tuning in as we continue working our way through our Advent series. And we're going to pick up where pa- Pastor Roger left off last week. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, um, we're going to dive in there here in just a little bit. Um, well, I don't know about you, uh, but I am not a naturally patient person, okay? Uh, when I've got something on my mind, um, I'm ready to go. Like, let, let's make it happen. Uh, like, for instance, when I'm in, a, in the drive through line, if, it, if it's not moving, I get, I get kind of frustrated. I'm like, why can't y'all be like Chick-fil-A? I mean, Chick-fil-A's always moving. <laughs> What's going on? And, uh, and my daughters are the same way. Like, um, when they want breakfast, they want breakfast, okay? Like, if you don't get them breakfast, they will literally transform into some tiny goblins, okay? It's terrifying. Um, Waiting is tough for the Upmore family. Uh, But I don't think it's just an Upmore problem. It's a humanity problem because we are naturally an impatient people. Uh, Because of our sin nature, like instant gratification, it plagues our society. Like when we want something, we want it now, and we want it the easiest way possible, which is why we're observing Advent this year. Because one of the main themes of Advent is waiting. Because for centuries, the Jewish people waited for the coming Messiah. And we too, as believers in Christ, are waiting once again for our Savior to return. Advent reminds us that we have been called by God to wait. Psalm 27, 4, it says this, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Notice it says in Psalm 27 that it takes courage to wait. Because waiting is is often one of the most difficult things that you and I will do in this life. Romans 8 says that all creation is groaning for redemption. And we are intimately familiar with that groaning. Because things aren't right in our lives. Things aren't right in our world. And we're yearning for completion. And so what the Advent season is supposed to do, it's, it's supposed to direct our mind on the arrival of Christ so that we can have courage to be strong as we wait for the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we dive into Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. We're going to pray that the truth of these verses would grant us courage to wait well for the Lord. Uh, So before we dive in, would you bow with me one more time as we ask for the Lord to do just that? Well, Father God, we we give you this time, and we want to humbly ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and most importantly, that you would transform us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's read some of the most familiar and happy words of Christmas which are found in Luke chapter 2, and y'all know the story. The first seven verses describe for us the birth of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem, where he had no place to lay his head. So they stayed in an animal stable or a manger, more than likely a cave, where Jesus was laid in a feeding trough. Uh, There were no fireworks when this baby baby was born. Um, Nobody around them noticed anything significant about this couple or about this baby. 
But that would all change in verse 8, which is where we're going to pick up the story. It says this. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Amen. Well, as you're reading through Luke 2, you'll notice that there's a shift in the story when you get to verse 8. It goes from Joseph and Mary in a manger to some anonymous shepherds in the fields who are watching their flocks by night. And, and these guys are just doing their job. They're watching their flock. They're counting their sheep. They're looking out for predators. Just another night's work for these nameless shepherds. And as they go about doing their work, verse 9 says that suddenly an angel, singular, stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. You know, when I'm at home, um, I'm a pretty big goofball. I know that's hard to imagine. And uh, one thing I enjoy doing, and I know y'all are going to judge me for this, and I don't care. Uh, but one thing that I like to do is I like to hide in my house. Okay? And then when I see my little girls walk by, or my wife, I jump out and I say, ah, okay. And then they fall to the ground in fear. Okay, like, For whatever reason, I, I get a lot of joy from doing that. And I don't feel bad about it because I, I read this passage and I'm reminded that God likes to do the same thing. Okay? Like over and over throughout the scriptures, when the glory of the Lord shows up, it comes about suddenly and it scares the tar out of people. Okay? It catches people off guard because God comes at times when people least expect. And that's what he does here. The shepherds are minding their own business. They're just doing their job. And boom, suddenly, angel of the Lord appears. And God's glory was all around. And the result is quite interesting. When the angel shows up, when the glory of the Lord shone around these shepherds, it says that these shepherds were terribly frightened. They were scared out of their darn mind. So what's going on? Why would the shepherds be so scared when God's glory shows up? Well, the best definition for the word glory is the word weight. So you can imagine when God's glory appeared, the weight of the Lord was all around them and his presence was heavy. Notice that when God's glory showed up, when his weight showed up, darkness disappeared and humans trembled. Because when God's glory shows up, it puts things in their proper place. And I would argue that one of the reasons why God's glory is so terrifying, because God's glory exposes us for who we really are. When God's glory shows up, there's no question asking. When God's glory showed up to the shepherds, they didn't say, oh, praise God. Thank you. We've been wanting to ask you this question for a long time. Like, how does predestination and free will work? Like, no. 
That's not what you see. There are no questions asked. Like when God's glory shows up, people just fall to the ground. Like that's what you see over and over throughout the scriptures. People are deathly afraid when the glory of God is revealed. When the glory of God is revealed to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. That's the typical response. The initial reaction to God's glory is, I shouldn't be here. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of something this holy. That's the natural response. Why is that? Well, because we know us. We know us, don't we? We know what we think about. We know who we are when no one else is watching. We know the pride that consumes our minds. We know the lustful thoughts that we've imagined. We know us. And we know the wickedness that's in our hearts. And if God gives us what we deserve, we'll be consumed by his wrath. And we know that. We know that. But what's astonishing about this text is when God intervenes in this space, when God's glory shows up, he doesn't establish fear. He drives it out. The most common phrase in the Bible is fear not. Don't be afraid. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Mary, he says, fear not, Mary, for you are highly esteemed. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, he says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That's the message of Christmas for those of us that are in Christ. Our God declares, fear not, O child. I'm not against you. I'm for you. Don't be afraid. John 3.17 says this. A lot of us know John 3.16. Uh, John 3.17 is actually just as inspired as John 3.16. So let me read it. It says this. It says that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. First John 4.16 says our God is a God of love. And perfect love casts out fear. That's what Christmas is about. God comes not as a wrathful, angry God. God comes to drive out fear. That's why Jesus came. He came to rid us of our fears. And that's what the angel declares to the shepherds. He says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. He tells the shepherds, God's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He loves you and he brings you good news. That's the message of Christmas. But most of our struggles in this life are rooted in fear. Are they not? Like, am I good enough? Like, if people really knew me, would they still love me? Am I worthy? Am I going to make it? Like, these are questions that haunt humans, and they're rooted in fear. But when Christ comes, he drives out that fear. And he replaces those fearful questions with hopeful promises rooted in his joy. You see, when when God shows up, he reorients worship. See, human beings like you and I, we are made to worship. It's in our DNA. We were created to, to cherish something, to champion something. The problem with humanity is we worship the wrong things. 
That's what Romans 1.25 talks about. We have a tendency to worship created things rather than the creator who created all those things. It plagues us. And so what Christ does when he comes is he reorients worship and he shows mankind how to properly worship again. He says, get your eyes off of created things. You get them onto me. They can't satisfy you, but I can. They can't save you, but I can. That's what Christmas is all about. Listen, I've got a great wife. <laughs> like she is phenomenal. Uh, I love her. She loves me. I am so, so grateful for her. But while marriage is a wonderful gift, it is a terrible God. Because I will never be able to satisfy the deepest longings of my wife's heart. Only God can do that. I do not complete my wife. Christ does. Marriage is beautiful, but it's a terrible God. I love my kids. They are cute as anything. Got some great kids. Children are such a gift. But they don't complete me. They can't save me. They are terrible gods. I love my work. I love Wayside Chapel. I love getting to preach and be a part of this amazing community. Work is a gift, but it is a terrible one sure way to make your marriage crumble is make your spouse your savior. They can't save you. They weren't meant to bear that weight. If you want to crush your kids, make them your everything. Use them to validate your worth on this planet. They can't bear that weight and they weren't made to. If you want to be depressed when you retire... Put all your identity and all your worth into work. And then when you lose it, you won't know what life is about anymore. Listen to the angels. Glory to God in the highest. Worship is being reordered. Don't put your hope in created things. They can't bear that weight. But there is someone who can. And his name is Jesus, whose shoulders are broad enough to take on the burdens of this world. You look to him. You rest in him. You cherish him. You champion him. That's where joy is found. And that's where identity and worship is meant to take place. And that's what the angels reveal. This baby who's been born, lying in the manger, glory to God in the highest. Our Savior, He's here. Notice that it says, Today, in the city of David, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, this isn't some imaginary day. Okay, but like a real historical day, a day in which Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome, a day when a census was taken that forced Joseph and Mary to migrate to Bethlehem, like a real historical day. The birth of Jesus happened on a real day in a real city. Okay, I'm reading Chronicles of Narnia uh, to my daughters. Uh, Jesus was not born in Narnia. He wasn't born in Middle Earth. He wasn't born in a galaxy far, far and away. No, uh, he was born in a city that still exists to this day. It's about 7,247 miles east of San Antonio. Lord willing, we're going to take a team there this summer to go check it out. It's a city where Jesse lived, the father of David, the great king of Israel, a city called Bethlehem in which Micah prophesied about in Micah 5.2, where it foretells of a day coming where a great ruler would be born from the tribe of Judah. And guess what? Records show us that this ruler was born just as it was predicted. In that real city, on that real day, 
a Savior was born, who is Christ the Lord. And the reason this is such good news is because Christ, is because God didn't send a judge. God didn't send a, a soldier. He didn't send a politician. No, God sent what man desperately needed, a Savior. And the Bible says if you've ever sinned against God, then you are in dire need of a Savior because only God can forgive sins against God. But the good news is this. Our God wants to forgive you. He wants to. He wants to save you. In fact, that's why he came. 1 John 3, 5 says this. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. A couple verses later in 1 John 3, 8, it says that Jesus appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. That's Christmas. The Son of God became human in order to take away sin. That's why he came. Hallelujah. That's why we have hope. That's why we have hope. And this good news is for all the people. You catch that? This isn't just good news for a certain type of people. No, it's good news for all people. You know, it's interesting that out of all people that God could have chosen to make this glorious announcement to, he chose the shepherds. (laughs) It's remarkable. So let's talk about that real quick. Like, why would God choose some shepherds in order to make the greatest announcement in the world to? (laughs) Now, obviously, it's fitting that the great shepherd, Jesus, would be announced to some shepherds, okay? But I mean, if you're going to announce the birth of the king of the universe, the savior of the world, you would think that God would have chosen to announce it to a more important people, like possibly King Herod or or Caesar Augustus, maybe like the religious elite, maybe the Pharisees. But God chose to reveal this announcement to some shepherds. I want you to listen to this quote. It's from a philosopher in Alexandria which was kind of the center of the intellectual world at the time. And it says this about shepherds. There's no more disreputable an occupation than that of a shepherd. They cannot be trusted. They are brute, thieving, deplorable men who prefer the company of animals and other men than they do community life. Here's another quote from from some first century literature called the Mishnah, which was Judaism written record of oral law. It says this. Shepherds are incompetent. No one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit, end quote. <laughs> like that's some extreme prejudice and disdain there. Like if you, if you walk, you see a pit, if there's someone in there, check on them. But if it's a shepherd, keep walking. <laughs> I mean, it's cold. Like some commentators will know that because of the work that they did, this made shepherds ceremonially in, unclean. So they couldn't come to worship at the temple. They couldn't hold judicial offices. They couldn't be used as witnesses in the courts. Many will note that the shepherds were kind of at the bottom of the social order. Like people didn't like them. People didn't trust them. They were a bunch of crooks and thieves. Yet when the good news for all people gets announced, who does it get announced to? The shepherds. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. But pay attention to the scriptures. That's typically how God rolls. That's like his MO. Like if you're weak, boom, I'm going to use you. If you're strong, it's like you're disqualified. That's how it works in God's economy. It was Jesus who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. 
He said the first are going to be last. The last are going to be first. When Jesus hung out with people here on this earth, who did he hang out with? Tax collectors and sinners. That's the heart of our God. It's the broken. It's the lost. It's the outcast. Those are the ones who get the good news first. Jesus himself was, was born of some peasant parents in a podunk, tiny little town in a cave where animals resided. Jesus not only saves the broken, he identifies with them and he moves into their neighborhood. Jesus doesn't just give money to the poor and then stand off at a distance. No, he moves in with the poor and he makes their home his home. It's incredible. That's our God from the very beginning. It's easy to see that this Messiah is not going to fit expectations. He was born in an animal room and he will die with robbers because our Savior didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. Do you feel broken this morning? Do you feel lost? Do you feel weak? Do you feel helpless? Well, you're in a good place because Jesus came for people just like you. He didn't come for the people that had their lives all figured out. No, he came for the broken, the outcast, the forgotten. That's who our God is after. And what the Bible says, those people that act like they have their lives all together, they're lying because nobody does. We're all sinners, myself included. We're all outcasts. We're all sick. We're all poor. We're all weak. On our own, we don't have what it takes to overcome our sin. We can't restore the brokenness that's in our lives, which is why Jesus came. He came to do for us that which we couldn't do for ourselves. He came to grant us peace. Peace. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to Cameron Contrasano, uh, who's a pastor out at Stone Oak. And he brought to my attention that after the angel gets done preaching the gospel to the shepherds, suddenly a great multitude of heavenly hosts appeared. And the Greek word here for host is strosius, which literally means an army, a band of soldiers prepared for war. Okay, so you got to believe if the shepherds were terrified earlier, they have now just passed out. <laughs> but shockingly, this mighty armor of God comes not to declare war on sinful humanity, but to offer peace. As they proclaim, give glory to God in the highest and peace among men. That's why Jesus came, not to harm us, not to judge us, but to give us peace. Jesus says in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, but not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I want to end our time today just talking about peace. Because I think at the end of the day, uh, most of us, that's what we're searching for. We want more peace. We want more peace. In fact, let, let's do a case study real quick. Um, how many of you would say, like post-conversion, so like after you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, post-conversion, you've had seasons where you haven't felt all that peaceful. Okay, raise your hand if, if that's been you. Hold them up. All right, so pretty much everybody, okay? So let's just be honest about something for a moment. 
okay? Something that, that suffocates many Christians in this life is the temptation in thinking that I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's struggling. I'm the only one who doesn't have peace right now because we go on Instagram, we go on Facebook, everybody else is doing good. They all got peace. I don't. And we isolate ourselves and we sink into depression. We've got to do more of that where we all put our hands up and admit, hey, we all go through seasons where we struggle. Because if we're going to experience more peace in this life, we've got to admit that. We've got to be real about that and allow others to come alongside of us so that they can encourage us in the hopeful promises of God so that we can experience the peace of Christ that we are meant to have. And so what I want to do to close is I want to break down what peace is, what peace is not, and then how to obtain it. Because all of you just raised your hand and said you go through seasons where you don't feel all that peaceful. So we need to talk about this. And there's a lot I could say, but I'm limited in time, so I'm just going to say a few things. Okay, so first off, what is the opposite of peace? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14, do not be troubled, do not be afraid. So when we are fearful, when we are anxious about something, we are not experiencing the peace of God that Christ came to give us. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And the most basic meaning of shalom is to be complete, to be made whole. So I want you to picture a brick wall. I want you to picture a brick wall. And I want you to imagine that there's one brick that's missing from that wall. If there's a brick missing from that brick wall, then that wall is not shalom. But if that wall has nothing missing, if it's perfect, if it's complete, then that wall is shalom. I like the way that the Bible Project puts it. They say this about shalom. The core idea of shalom is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom, your peace breaks down. So to bring shalom literally means to make complete, to restore. That's why in the Old Testament, if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. That's why in the book of Proverbs, to reconcile, to heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. In the Old Testament, when rival kingdoms made shalom, they didn't just stop fighting, they started working towards one another's benefit. So peace is not just the absence of conflict. True peace is taking what's broken and it's restoring it to wholeness. And that's what Jesus came to do. Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet says that there is a future king that is to come, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring everlasting shalom. And he would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right every wrong and heal everything that is broken. That's the type of peace that Jesus, is, he promises believers this Advent as we focus on the second Advent. Um, I was talking to Maggie McCaslin, who works on staff with us the other day. And a few summers ago, uh, she decided uh, to join our Arizona team to go minister to the Navajo people and, uh, on the reservation. And while she was there, she, she was rooming um, with this Navajo girl 
who was experiencing some pretty intense anxiety. Like Maggie said, this girl would have dreams that literally like demons were chasing her and they just tormented her. And so she'd wake up in the middle of the night and she'd, she'd run back and forth just feeling tormented by these, by these dreams and Maggie would have to grab her and just hold her, just pray for her, right? Just a tormented little girl. But praise be to God, through Maggie's love and her faith, she was able to share the gospel with this girl. And she ended up praying to receive Christ as her Lord. And Maggie will tell you that there's a night and day difference with this child after she prayed to receive Christ. She went from anxious and troubled to peaceful and hopeful. There's a supernatural peace that overcame this little girl and assured her that everything was going to be all right. Everything was going to be all right. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for those of us who believe. And what did this little girl naturally want to do as a result? She wanted to go tell her family about this peace that she has experienced through Christ. And she became a messenger of peace. And that's what happens when we encounter Jesus, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we experience this peace. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. It's a peace that's not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in the very person of God. And we naturally want to go be messengers of that peace. And some of you listening, whether online or here in person, you've never experienced that peace in your life before, ever. You've never known that peace. And I just want to challenge you. You will never find that peace in this world. You won't find it. You can try everything you want. You'll find temporal pleasure, but you'll never find that fulfilling peace that Christ offers. But the good news is that peace is available for you if you will own your sin and realize that Jesus came to fix your brokenness as he went to the cross. He died for your sins and he rose from the grave. And if you will call upon the name of the Lord, he'll save you. And peace is yours. And while we only have peace in part right now, one day it's going to come in fullness. That's a truth. That's a promise for those of us in Christ. And I want to encourage you, if you're here and you've never taken that step of faith before, I'd love to talk to you. Okay, email us. Or if you're here in person, come talk to me after the end of the service. And I'd love to talk to you more about the peace that Christ gives. But as all of us attested to earlier... Trusting in Christ as your Savior doesn't mean that hard times aren't going to come again. As a follower of Christ, your peace and your faith will be tested time and time again in this life. So the question that I want to end on for those of us in Christ is how do we find peace when we're going through troubling times? And I just want to share a quick verse with you and then we'll close. It says this in Psalm 119, verse 65. It says, those who love your law... Have great peace or shalom. And nothing causes them to stumble. Okay, how do you know if you love God's word? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So if you're a Christian, if you've been saved by grace through faith, and you want to experience more peace in this life, then walk in obedience to God's word. Just do what the Bible tells you to do. Follow Jesus' teaching. Do what's right, even when you don't feel it. And the peace of God will be granted to you. 
I told y'all a couple weeks ago um, that I took my daughter Avery to go see Frozen 2 and she could barely contain her emotions. Um, and there's this really profound song in that movie and uh, I'm not going to sing it for you. But I want to read uh, a couple lines because um, I am 100% a hashtag girl dad. Okay? Um, but a little background for you. Okay, bear with me. Um, so one of the main characters in the movie, Anna, uh, she's just lost her sister, Elsa, and she's trying to find her. And she is deeply distraught. I mean, tear-jerking moment for toddlers as well as for mothers of toddlers. Okay. But in the midst of this troubling time, she starts to sing this song called Just Do the Next Right Thing. And I want to read some of the lines to you. Uh, she says these words. This grief was a gravity. It pulls me down. But a tiny voice whispers in my mind, you are lost, hope is gone. But you must go on and do the next right thing. It goes on to say the following, how to rise from the floor. Just do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It's all that I can do. The next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. A lot of good theology in Frozen 2. <laughs> How do we find more peace? It's simple. Trust Jesus and obey him. Do the next right thing. Jesus tells us, he says, don't think about tomorrow. For today has enough troubles of its own. So I want you to pray. And I want you to think about today. How can you obey God more today? How can you take a step of obedience today and then go do it? Just do the next right thing. Because those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we... We thank you so much for the peace that you offer us through Christ because we know us. We know the sin that's in our life. We know the addictions that we struggle with. We know the thoughts that enter our mind. Yet you are a God of great grace and you've come to give us good news. You've come not to judge, not to condemn, not to showcase your wrath, but to give us that which we don't deserve, peace. And we praise you for that. And God, I know there's some people listening right now and they're feeling some anxiety. They're feeling burdened. It's heavy. God, would you come over them right now? Would you remind them of the hope that we have in Christ? And would you grant them peace? God, we love you. Help us to be messengers of peace during this broken time that we live in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you joining us online, thanks. Thanks for joining and tuning in. And uh, just a reminder to everybody, if you want to just keep meditating on peace this week, we have an Advent devotional, um, which you can find online on our website. So please check that out. Uh, but those of you online, you'll have a great week.